Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Uh, we are continuing as a church to walk through the season of Advent. This is the third week. If you're new to Heritage Park or maybe new to church, Advent is a traditional uh, season in the, the church calendar where we prepare our hearts uh, to celebrate Christmas, to reflect on the coming of Christ uh, in the manger, which is what we celebrate on Christmas. And each week, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we uh, reflect on and look at God's Word on a specific theme of um, kind of the Christmas season. And we started, uh, and each week we, we light a candle kind of to remember, to remind ourselves uh, of these different themes. Um, in the first week, we talked about David. Uh, sorry, we talked about um, Noah, right? Yeah, Noah. <laughs> Too many weeks, you know, you had one, two, three. So we talked about Noah and just that God entered into a dark time in human history, that the, the world was wicked, there was so much sin, but instead of just abandoning the world, God entered in. And because God enters into not only Noah's world, but our world and our mess today, it's something that we can have hope. And so we light the candle. If I can get around the wax here. There we go. Uh, we light the candle of hope. So again, we can just look at and remember that in all of our circumstances, we are a people that have hope. And then last week, we looked at the life of Joseph, this man who was born and had just so many injustices done to him. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was betrayed uh, by his employer's wife, that he was wrongfully accused. and He was thrown into jail. He was thrown into the bottom of a pit. But in each of these circumstances, we see this repeated refrain that God was with him. And because God was with him, um, he had peace. And in the Christmas season, because God comes to be with us in Emmanuel, we also can have peace. And then this week, we turn to the third theme, the theme of joy. And we, we light the pink candle, the candle of joy. And of course, the question always comes up, why is it pink? You know, it's something, if you're not around Advent, there's always kind of just stands out up there. Um, and just kind of in short, because it, again, it's a question, you can go read on this if you want, uh, more online or something like that. But uh, Again, this has been something that the church has done for many, many years. It's not something that Heritage Park invented or the American church invented. It goes well back to the days of the early church. Um, and kind of traditionally, Advent has been seen as a season of waiting, a season of uh, reflection on the coming of Christ, on why we need a Savior. Um, oftentimes, repentance and fasting has been predominant themes. Um, and the church, and especially in high liturgies, if you guys grew up in like an Episcopalian or a Catholic culture, you have more of this than we do in the Baptist church. Uh, but the church sets aside kind of colors as a visual cue of, oh, this is what we're thinking about to kind of to set a mood uh, for us. And the color purple has been associated with repentance and fasting and waiting. So Advent is kind of primarily um, a purple uh, season. There's a lot of uh, purple investments if the clergy wore those and certain things. Uh, but the church also thinks it's really important. It has always been, hey, we are a people, because of what God has done for us, we are a people that no matter what season we find ourselves in, we are not without joy. And pink, kind of rose, is a color that they've used to symbolize joy, to look at and remind ourselves that, no, God has done something amazing for us. And so on the third week of Advent, we light the candle of joy to remind ourselves that God has done an amazing, amazing work for us that we see come to fruition in Christmas. And that's what we're here to celebrate. That's what we're here to reflect on. And so we're going to look at the life of David and a few scenes from his life and see how God worked in David's life to bring about joy. 
and how God worked through David to bring joy for God's people, the people of Israel, and then ultimately how God uh, works through the coming of Christ to bring joy into our lives today. Um, Like I said, we'll be starting in 1 Samuel 17. This is one of the most famous stories, not just in the Bible, but really kind of in the world today. Uh, Even if people don't grow up in church, they don't have much exposure to the Bible, they probably know the story of David and Goliath which is what we are in, in 1 Samuel 17. You know, the kind of ultimate underdog story about this young shepherd boy who defeats the giant. And we'll, we'll read part of this, but we'll kind of just set the scene because it's a long story. It's about 50-something verses. And so to kind of set the stage for what we'll read here in a minute, um, the, the people of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, is led by King Saul at this point. And they're at war with the Philistines, one of the kind of frequent enemies that they had in the Old Testament that they were constantly fighting against. And they've kind of drawn up, preparing for a battle, that you've got the army of Israel on one side of the valley, and then the army of the Philistines on the other side of this valley. And they're faced off just kind of waiting for stuff to develop. And out of the army of the Philistines, out of their battle line, comes this one uh, literal giant of a man. that We all know it's Goliath, again, one of the famous characters of the Old Testament, famous bad guys of the Old Testament. And what he does is he issues a challenge to the army of Israel. He says, hey, we don't need to have this full battle. We don't need to kill thousands of people on each side. Why don't we just do a one-on-one fight? If I win, then my side wins and you guys will serve us. But if you send out a champion that defeats me, then the Israelites will win and we will serve you. And of course, when Israel hears the scripture says that they were dismayed, literally the word there is they were shattered. Like they were just destroyed and they were greatly afraid because they looked at this guy they saw his size and they knew that no one in their army could fight match up against him you know I was like can you take him I can't take him can you nope nope okay well we're in trouble then and so they sit for 40 days this man coming out taunting them challenging them and they just sit in constant fear and this is the scene that David walks up on see David at this point in his life is too young to serve in the army he's got three older brothers that are there and camped with the army of Israel And his uh, dad, Jesse, sends him essentially with a care package. You know, if you've had a son or a brother uh, or a daughter, someone in your family serve in the armed forces uh, and be stationed elsewhere, you've probably gone through this. You've sent them, you know, a case of Dr. Pepper. You sent them the things that they can't get stationed abroad uh, so that they know that they're cared for and just to check in on them. It's the same idea that David goes with some stuff from his dad to take to his brothers and then to see how they're doing, to check on their well-being. And so he walks up and he sees Goliath come out and issue this challenge. But he has a very different response than the army of Israel did. Israel had sat there just terrified of this man. They were frozen in fear. But David comes in and his response isn't to be afraid. But he actually says, who is this man? Who is this guy that would defy the armies of the living God? See, David approaches this completely differently than the rest of the army of Israel. The army of Israel had sat there and looked, and they could only be consumed with the challenge that was in front of them. They knew that this man that that was challenging them to a fight was far greater than anything they could match up against. They knew that they could not overcome him. But David, when he comes up to this, is not concerned with the challenge that's in front of him. He's concerned, and he knows the might of the God that's behind him. He knows that what's in front of him is no match for the God that is promised to defend and to deliver his people. And so he's willing to take on this challenge. He doesn't come into it armed with the latest gear, with the biggest weapons to try and, uh, you know, win this battle in the ways that uh, the army of Israel was thinking about it. He goes in in the same way that he would just go in as a shepherd to protect the flocks. He goes in with a staff and he goes in with a sling. And there we pick up, uh, again, in verse 41, kind of the climax of this 
scene. It says, And then the Philistine, Goliath, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come against me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies and the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face, fell on his face to the ground. See, David walks up to this battle and he's under no delusion. Like he recognizes it is for what he is. He sees the size of Goliath. He sees the sword that he carries. He sees the... Uh, giant spear that he's got and all the impressiveness of his physical stature then he walks in not concerned with the weapons because he knows that the weapon that he's primarily coming into this battle with is not a staff it's not a sword it's not even the sling that he comes with he knows that his primary weapon here is that he goes in the name of the lord that has promised to deliver his people the one who will fight for him and the fight that it, once it actually takes place again this story is 50 something verses it's only about two verses when it actually transpires it's over with in an instant it's almost anticlimactic and you can only imagine after again 40 days of build-up to this moment when goliath goes down just that stunned moment of people just looking out and trying to make sense of what just happened and you have this great reversal in all the people that are standing there watching it, the Philistines who had been confident, that had been assured of their victory, that knew this thing's going to be over in a moment, Scripture says that all of a sudden they were filled with fear and they flee. And on the other side of that, you have the Israelites, the ones that had cowered in terror for weeks and weeks, filled with courage, and they rush out and pursue the Philistines. You know, just like any moment, if you've ever been in a moment where you look at and there's a situation in your life, you're like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I, I only see bad things coming out of here. I, I, every way that I play this out in my mind, it's going to end poorly. And then something about your circumstances change, and that thing that seemed insurmountable, that seemed the, the, that issue that you thought would not be able to be fixed, is suddenly resolved. You know that sudden joy that rushes in, that replaces the, the depth of the despair you had, how much that heightens the joy in that moment once the victory is assured. And this is what happens to the people of Israel when they see David slay Goliath. Is that me? Am I on? And we're back. So um, the joy that, that rushes on them all of a sudden when they have this victory that they thought just before this had seemed impossible. And see, what is the source of this joy? The source of the joy isn't David winning the battle. Like, he's the human actor that made this possible. But the source of the joy is the victory that only God could deliver to them. See, this is what David understood when he says, he says, hey, I'm going to, you know, sling the stone. He knew that he was going to take some actions that would result in David being defeated. But how did he phrase it? He said, the Lord is the one who is going to deliver you into my hand. He knew that the Lord was ultimately the figure that was going to make this possible. I'm assuming that most of you guys are, are like me and you've done some Christmas shopping lately. 
Um, if not, you got to get like Bayberg Mall's not far, guys. Like you are running out of time. Um, but really, most of us probably have spent a good amount of time on Amazon or on a on an online retailer, just because it's so easy. You know, it just the convenience is so hard to beat. And this season, we order a lot of stuff, and that delivery truck just constantly shows up in front of our home. And we know if we kind of step back and think about it, like there's a lot of moving parts that go from, like once you purchase something, go from getting that from the manufacturer or the distributor to your front door, but we contribute very little to that process. Like somebody's gotta put in a lot of work. I just give them my credit card number, you know? But I get the benefit from it, I get to receive it. You know, when I click buy, I may as well say, today Amazon will deliver you into my hand and I will answer my door and open a box. And that's all I have to do to this. You know, that's the same way David just says, I'm going to do my little step, but ultimately this is going to be God that delivers Goliath to me. And just like Noah, and just like in Joseph's life, and just like in David's life, God ultimately is the one who acts to deliver us, who acts to defeat the enemy of his people. And we can have joy in our lives today because we understand that whatever circumstances face us, whatever problems that seem insurmountable on our own strength and our own power, we know that there's a God who stands behind us and has promised to go before us that is greater than whatever faces us. And so that we can have uh, joy in this. But we uh, forget joy. We lose joy when we forget this truth and we start looking at our problems and looking at what's in front of us and thinking, I've got to be the one to figure this out. I've got to be the one to solve this. When we rely on our own strength, we lose joy. All right, so let's jump forward to 2 Samuel chapter 5. To kind of fast forward in time here, uh, the joy that David has when he defeats Goliath is short-lived. Like there's this great victory, uh, it goes on. But things kind of take a turn in the next chapter because King Saul begins to get jealous of David's success. He gets jealous of his popularity with the people. And Saul sees him as a threat to his throne and he begins to pursue him. And David has to flee and spends the rest of 1 Samuel basically on the run from Saul trying to uh, save his life, to preserve his life because Saul is coming after him. Uh, But then at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is killed in battle with the Philistines. uh, And then David begins to become the king of Israel, which he had actually been anointed the king uh, in First Samuel, even before he fought Goliath, said, hey, you are going to be the one that replaces King Saul, and now that's coming to fruition. You know, this is one thing, that a truth that had been spoken into David's life long ago had taken many years and many dark days to come to. Uh, but in Second Samuel chapter 5, we see him finally becoming crowned the king of Israel. Verse 1, read this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Uh, Jump down to, to verse 11 if you're reading along. It says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people. See, David's anointed king, and we see God's anointed chosen person being placed as the leader over his people. And they enter into this time just of prosperity, this time of joy. And what do we experience when we find ourselves under the will of God, being led uh, by the person that God had 
puts over us through God's chosen king, we also experience joy. Uh, look back at verse 12, which can be a little confusing because it says he a bunch. And so I'll, I'll substitute that with the antecedent because um, I think it makes it a little clearer. David knew, um, other translations say David realized or David perceived. Again, David is looking at his reign and the, the prosperity that the people are experiencing, and he understands this is not something that he's brought about. This is the blessing of God on the people. Again, verse 12 says, And then David knew that the Lord had established David king over Israel, and that God had exalted David kingdom, David's kingdom for the sake of God's people Israel. Israel here in this moment is seeing the fruition of all of the promises um, that God had made to Abraham many, many generations before. That God had promised their father Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the people around you. I'm going to do this mighty work in you. And now under David, they're beginning to see that this is the high point really of the Old Testament under King David. Where they see um, so many of the blessings of God coming out, coming to fruition under his rule. Before this, they had had a king. You know, we talked about him a minute ago. We had King Saul. Um, King Saul was the one the people of Israel had wanted to rule over them. If you go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, you see the Israelites ask God to give them a king like the other nations have so that they may be like the other nations. Which is against God had said, no, I have made you a people to be different from the other nations, to be a light to the other nations. But Israel had said, no, no, we want to be like them, so give us a king that will make us like them. Like sometimes God does to us, God gave them what they wanted, and they gave him, they had King Saul. And King Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 9, we read that he's kind of the person that the world looks at and says, hey, that guy should be king. It says he's tall, he's rich, and he's good looking. You know, this is the world doesn't change that much from generation to generations. This is the type of man that you look at and go, he's a leader, he's the one that should be in charge. And there's some good things that happened under him. But what you see is time goes along, his character shows forward. And what we see is it's not the outward appearance that's the important thing about him. But it's the character that he lacked that causes him so many issues. That he's petty, he's insecure, he's jealous. He's all of these different things. And his rule ends up bringing a lot more hardship on the people of Israel than joy. And it's under David, it's under God's anointed person that they experience joy. And the same thing for us. When we look to the people, when we look to the things that God says, this is what brings joy, that's where we find it. When we look to the things of this world and we look to the things that we think will bring us joy, we go, oh, no, that's, that's what I need to do. Rather than the things of God, we lose joy. We rob ourselves of joy. So one last moment in, in David's life to reflect on the joy that God brought to his people. Um, and before that, we're going to, it's looking at the ark. Um, which, if you've read the Old Testament or seen Indiana Jones, you're familiar with this. Um, but the Old Testament, they had the Ark of the Covenant. And just real quick, kind of what was this? Um, if we've got some kids in the room, you can help me out with this. Uh, what, what is this? Anybody? A flag? An American flag, right? An American flag, exactly. What, and what does that represent? It represents our country, right? Like, honestly, if we look at it, it's just cloth sewn together, right? Like, that's what it physically is. But it means so much more to us that grew up in America because we know it represents the land that we're a part of. And if we get off a plane in an airport and we see that, we know, hey, I've landed in an American airport. I'm on American soil. If we are vacationing in Europe or in South America or in some foreign country and we drive up on a building and this flag is flying from it, we may know we're, we're at an embassy. 
Like this is a little outpost of American soil, no matter where I am in the world. In the same way, the ark in the Old Testament represented God's presence amongst his people. Like God had promised that he would dwell amongst the people of Israel. And he gave them the ark as something that they could look to and remind themselves that no, the God of the universe, the creator over everything, lives and dwells amongst us. And so even in the high point kind of, of David's rule, things were going great, but there was one thing that was missing. The ark wasn't where it needed to be. The ark was kind of off on, in a different place. And so David says, I'm going to bring that back into our midst. That's where we pick up in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him um, from Bala, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ao, uh, the son of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ao went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So this is a big deal, right? Like, I don't know about you, but when I get 30,000 of my closest friends together, like, we're going to, it's for a big celebration. You know, it's not just kind of the run of the meal celebrations. So David has gotten all these people together to celebrate, to have this moment of joy because the ark, the manifestation, the physical representation uh, that God dwelled among them was coming back to be in Jerusalem. But something happens here that creates a problem. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but for now, jump down to verse 12. It says, And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and of all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So we see joy amongst the people of Israel. Why? Because once again, they feel and see the presence of God back in their midst. God's presence amongst his people brings joy. Knowing that the creator of the universe, the one, the author of all that exists is near to you, is a source of joy. But what did we skip over? What were those verses that we, we jumped past? In his zeal to do something that was good, to do something that was God-honoring, David ignores how God actually said it should happen. So if you go back in Exodus, you go back in Leviticus, uh, God gave very specific instructions about how to handle the ark. It was this idea that if, if the holy God of the universe was going to dwell amongst sinful people, then we need to take that very seriously. And there are certain things that needed to happen in order to make that possible. For God to dwell amongst them, they needed to take certain steps. And David ignored what God had said. It says that he was supposed to carry it with poles on the shoulders of individuals. But instead of doing that, David gets a cart. Now, in verse 3, it says it's a new cart. It's probably the nicest cart in all of Israel at that time. You know, he didn't like cut corners. He's like, I need the shiniest, spiffiest cart with rims and everything we can do. But he's still not going about it in the right way. He's ignoring how God said he needed to do this. And this causes an issue because at one point this cart is rolling along and it hits a bump and it begins to fall. The ark begins to fall off it. And this character Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark, which again is something that God said no one should do. 
See, Uzzah, again, had this good impulse. I don't want the ark to fall. This is an important thing. I don't want it to hit the ground. But what he does is he ignores the commands of God instead of relying on his own thing, what he thought would be best rather than what God said to do. And so what should have been this giant celebration, what was this great moment as they brought the ark in, turned into a season of mourning, turned into a season of loss. They ended up having to just leave the ark where it was, kind of go away and then come back and try again later when they did pay more attention to God's commands and the way that God had said to move this thing. And so God's presence, what we see in this story is God's presence brings us joy, but we rob ourselves of joy when we do things, even good things, in the way that we think they should be done rather than the way that God says they should be done. So in each of these circumstances, we see God bringing joy to his people. Through David, the people of Israel experience this great joy, but each time this joy is still temporary. It's lost. Right after Goliath happens, David has to flee. The joy turns to sorrow. Uh, Even through David's life, even at the high point, he makes decisions, he sins, he does different things that ends up leading to a lot of stress and strife and division in his family and in the people of Israel. And then after David dies, the kings that follow him are not kings that follow God. Most of them led the people away from God. And so even if, if at the high point of the Old Testament we see a joy that is temporary and is hard to sustain, what hope do we have for a better joy, a more secure joy? And we find that answer in Christmas, in the manger. It's what Advent points us to. So that the Son of God would come. The very presence of God would come to be with us. Not a representation of it like the ark, but the very presence of God. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what in John 1, uh, the evangelist John says that the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. The word dwelt that he chooses to use there is not a throwaway word. It's the same word that in the Old Testament it references the tabernacle. Which, again, if you go back and read the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place that the ark was meant to be. The ark was contained within the tabernacle. And so when John says that this, the word came and dwelt amongst us, he's bringing intentionally this image together, this image to the minds of his readers. That this, in the same way that we looked at the ark and saw the representation of God's presence, when we look at Christ, we see his very presence. Not, again, a, a symbol, but the reality that God has come to be with his people. And also in Christ, it's not, if that's not enough, that God, Christ is also the king that God promised. In 2 Samuel uh, verse 7, God had made a covenant with David that the throne would be established and that a son of David, a king that would follow David, would bring peace to his people. In, chapter, uh, in verse 10 of that chapter, God says this, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And I'll give you rest from your enemies. And with each new king in the Old Testament, the people had looked and said, is this finally the one that will fulfill these promises of God? Will he bring about this rest? Will he bring about peace? Will he bring about prosperity? But over and over again in the Old Testament, they fall short. And most of them, like I said, lead away from God rather than towards God. But it's in Jesus that the son of David, the descendant of David, comes not again as a sinful man, but as God in flesh to be our king, to rule and to reign, and to fulfill all that God had promised. And finally, in Christ, God ultimately defeats, defeats the enemy of his people. 
See, David and Goliath was just one battle of many. It was an amazing battle. It was an amazing victory for God's people, the people of Israel. But there were still more wars to fight. There were still more battles to be had. But when Christ came, he defeated the enemy once and for all. Not something that he has to continue to fight. But he gave us victory over our great enemy of death. That he came and took on flesh and would go to the cross. He was born in a manger under the shadow of the cross. Knowing that he would go there. That he would take on death on himself. And through his resurrection would triumph over that. So that we who were under the power of sin and death, could have life and have eternal life. The coming of Christ brings us a secure joy because we look to him and we see rescue and salvation that we need from our sin and death. So as, as we walk from here and reflect kind of this week on the joy that's available to us in Christ, um, I hope that we reflect on two things walking out of here. Um, one, Know that Christ came not only that we could have joy, but Christ came because we give him joy. What I mean by that is we saw it in uh, the verse that was read over the screen that uh, in Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy, what joy are we talking about here? It's not an uh, abstract joy. It's not an undefined joy. The joy set before him. That joy is you. That joy is to save people, men and women, individuals, to be sons and daughters of God. Whether you walked in here and life is full and life is joyous and you have full relationships and friendships, or you walked in here wondering, man, does anyone in this world really even see me and care for me? We can look to the manger and see that God came for you. Because you bring him joy. When Christ thinks on you, there is a smile on his face. We sang the song, um, I think two before I came up here, Oh Holy Night. And there's a line in I think the first verse of that that says, When he appeared, the soul felt its worth. That we look at the manger and we know we matter because God came for us for the joy set before him. The incarnation, God's coming, wasn't joyous for him. He endured that. He, took, he left glory and came to a dirty barn. He took on flesh and experienced hunger and want and tiredness. Eventually, he experienced unjust accusation and murder. He did that for the joy set before. He endured that for our salvation. There's a movie um, came out in the 90s. Uh, most of you or many of you have probably seen it, The Shawshank Redemption. Um, it was one of those that... Every once in a while, about twice a year, I just find it on like TBS or TNT. I don't know that I ever saw the beginning of it, uh, but anytime I find it, like 15 minutes in, I'm like, okay, that's what I'm doing. Um, but if you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it for you. But it's like 30 years old, so that's on you. Um, <laughs> but the, the movie focuses on this man named Andy Dufresne, who is wrongly uh, convicted and imprisoned for the murder of his wife, um, and it's kind of follows him through the years of being in prison. And eventually he, he determines he's going to escape. He's going to get out. He's had enough. Um, and so towards the end of the movie, he enacts this plan to escape. And if you've seen the movie, you remember this as him kind of crawling through walls and getting down. But the last stretch that he has to get through um, to get outside of the wall of the prison is he has to crawl through a pipe that's just barely big enough for him to fit in. That's a sewage pipe that's taking all the filth from inside the prison out. 
And he does. He gets in it and he crawls and he makes it. And there's this really iconic scene when he finally reaches the end of the pipe. He kind of flops out and he stands up and he spreads his arms out and looks up. And rain comes down and just washes the muck off of him. And on his face is this serene expression of joy. Like joy for what? Not joy for what he had just endured. He went through that because the joy of freedom was in front of him. In the same way, Christ came and lived this life. Not, he endured the sufferings of this world in order that he may have joy in rescuing you to come to him. And finally, the, the second thing I hope we press into is that joy for believers is found in obedience to the things of God. Uh, I think there's an impoverished version of Christianity out there that says that, well, you know, you, you come and God gives you a bunch of rules and you should follow them because you may miss out on some things on this world, but eventually you get heaven and that's worth it. So, you know, sacrifice now in order to, to get to heaven um, and do that. But nothing could be further from the, church, the truth. We follow the author of joy, the source of joy. And so the commands of God are not meant to rob us of joy, but to open joy up to us. That as we follow the creator of the universe that says this is where joy is to be found, as we obey him, we find deeper and more true and more lasting joy than we would when we try and do things on our own. And so as we go from here, may we encounter experiences this week as we walk into situations where we have to choose to obey God or to obey man, where we have to choose to do things God's way or do things my way. Um, may we remember that as we obey the ways of God, that's where we will find the joy that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you are the author of joy, that you are not someone um, that's severe or stern, but you are a, a God of joy, um, and that that joy may be available to us through Christ, that we look at Christmas, that we look at the manger and we understand that that was done so that we may have joy, that we may have a relationship with you and experience the fullness of what you created us to be. So now as we walk out of here, may you just remind us in situations that we are to be those that have joy in our circumstances because we know that you come before us and behind us. And may we take a message of joy to a world that needs it.